Brad was a middle-aged professional, and he was having some weird symptoms, symptoms, physical symptoms. He had tingling on one side. He was tired. He had headaches. I should say, i got to pause right here. This isn't in my notes, so this always gets me in trouble. You're welcome. Some of us are really sensitive to medical things, so this isn't about any of you. This isn't a diagnosis, so don't go home tonight and say, well, I've got tingling, I've got a headache, the Spirit of the Lord must be working. No, no, just, it's an illustration, okay? You don't, I, I shouldn't say you don't have it, you probably don't have what he had. I'm not helping, am I? Okay. In fact, his headaches got so bad that he went and saw his doctor, but um, the guy was pretty much a healthy guy. Otherwise, they did some basic tests. They checked him out, and everything seemed fine, so they sent him home. But then one Thanksgiving, his symptoms got really bad. In fact, his fatigue became so pronounced, and his head hurt so badly, he couldn't even walk, couldn't even get up off the couch. So they called in the ambulance. They hauled him down to the emergency room, uh, did all the standard battery of tests, MRI, CT scan, blood tests. Couldn't find anything. In fact, after a couple hours, he started feeling better. He was able to walk around, and finally, they, they discharged him, and he went home. But he kept having these headaches, right? And so he eventually, not only did he go see his regular doctor, but he went to two different neurologists to try and get a handle on him. Why does my head hurt so much? Why am I having this weakness? And finally, one day, his symptoms got really bad. His head, his head was just killing him. He was having even more weakness. And now he was seeing double vision and seeing zigzag lines in his vision. So he calls up his neurologist and he says, man, this is going now. You've got to see me. We've got to figure this thing out. But the neurologist wasn't available to see him. So in desperation, he called his wife's ophthalmologist because he was seeing things in his vision. And the ophthalmologist was able to make time to see him, so... Brad went down and met with the ophthalmologist. His wife drove him, obviously. So he came into the room. The ophthalmologist sat him down and took one look in his eye, came back and said, Brad, you need to drive to the emergency room right now. Don't go home. Don't stop. Go there. I'll meet you there, and we'll consult with a neurosurgeon when we get there. So, he, okay. So they drive to the emergency room. They meet with a neurosurgeon. They take another CT scan, and the neurosurgeon says, Brad, we're glad you came in. We're glad you saw that ophthalmologist because in 24 hours, you would be dead. So what everyone had missed, but what the ophthalmologist was able to see in looking at his eye, is Brad had a, a bleed on his brain, and it was causing his brain to swell, and it was caused by a somewhat innocuous injury years before that he thought was relatively minor. So Brad had a problem. He knew he had a problem. He had headaches. He had weakness. He had fatigue. Everyone knew he had a problem. Every knew he had a, everyone knew he had an issue. The thing is this, though. No one knew how bad it was, did they? So you take, you take a Tylenol if you have a headache or whatever your pain reliever of choice is. You don't take Tylenol if your headache is caused by brain bleeding. It's not going to do anything. So because he uh, didn't know what the issue was, he wasn't able to address it with a proper remedy. And he had no idea how serious his situation actually was. And frankly, this is the way we live our lives. It's how we think about our life. We all know there are things in our life that should be different, right? We, there are things about our life that needs to change. Some of the bad things in our life are caused by our poor decisions, our bad judgment, 
irresponsible behavior, rebellious attitudes. There's also a number of things going on in our lives that are bad that need to change that were, were caused by no fault of our own. It was outside influences, outside people and situations which we had no control over. And, and we know they need changing, but we don't have any control over them. So we, we can look at our lives and we look at all these bad things going on, things in our life we would like to change, and we say, you know what, something's not right. We have these symptoms. Something's, something's amiss here. Something's not right here. But what's really interesting about how the Bible addresses these kinds of things is the Bible addresses these kinds of things in very much the same way that Brad's ophthalmologist addresses these things. The Bible speaks to the things in our life that need to change in a very straightforward and very direct manner without mincing a lot of words. The Bible tells us precisely what the problem is. If you remember back to Brad when he visited that ophthalmologist, when the ophthalmologist told him exactly what the problem was, was Brad offended? No, he was grateful, wasn't he? He was grateful now that the ophthalmologist had identified the actual problem, he could now pursue the proper remedy. Without knowing what the actual problem is, he's going to pursue remedies that do nothing. But since the, the real problem in his life was identified, he was grateful that it was exposed to him, and so now he could address it with the proper treatment. This is true of the Bible. It's going to speak to us and be very straight to us about what the issue is in our lives so that way, the right remedy can be applied. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. I mean, you read with me Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. There's no punches pulled there. The Bible is going to be very clear with what's going on in our life so that the proper remedy can be applied in our life. So let me suggest this and how the Bible talks about these matters. The message of the Bible is a message of faith. Sounds very encouraging. Oh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's faith to know and believe what the problem is, so that way I can believe what the remedy is. The message of, of the Bible is a message of faith. It's a message of faith that I might believe and understand what the actual problem is, so that way I might believe and understand what the actual remedy is. It's something I must know, but I, something I also must believe. And I'm not talking about faith in the absence of reasoning or clear thinking, the Bible is going to make a clear and I think very compelling case that we must either believe what it says about the problem and the remedy, or we must reject what it says about the problem and its remedy. So the message of the Bible is a call to faith, so we have to understand what the problem is so that way we can actually understand what the remedy is. So, all that being said, our message basically has two parts. One part we're going to cover this week, the problem. You're going to really wish you would have only come next week. And the second part is next week, and that is the remedy. Our problem is actually very similar to the problem that fat Brad faced in this way. So here's the title of the message, if you like writing titles down. Our bad is much worse than you think. Our bad is worse than you think. Ephesians chapter 2, look with me at verse 1. How bad is our bad? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to read just verse 1 again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's bad. I don't even know if we need to keep going. How bad is our bad? This, first thing, first point. We weren't just sick. We were dead. 
Our bad is worse than we think. How bad is our bad? We weren't just sort of sick. We were dead. We didn't just have a headache. Our condition is terminal. First thing, what is sin? Maybe wondering what sin is. And that's a fair question. We ought to ask what sin is. So first of all, sin, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sin. If you really want to understand what the Bible is saying, we should understand what sin is. Sin, first of all, is acts of evil. Acts of rebellion and wickedness that go against God's ways. Acts of disobedience. You can read throughout the Bible and discover all kinds of things that the Bible would tell us are evil, wicked, go against God's ways. So sin is when we actively do things we know are wrong. I don't know if I have to say this, but killing people, murdering people is wrong. So, I mean, we'll just start at the lower level. Murdering people is wrong. Stealing is also wrong. Sleeping with people that you aren't married to is wrong. Sin, though, goes beyond merely the things that we might do or refrain from doing that are evil. Sin also, the Bible tells us, is a heart condition. Sin is not only the things we do. Sin is actually the definition of who we are without the work of God. He says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're dead in those things we do that are evil, and we're dead because... We are evil. Sin is our identity. And our behavior is merely the expression of who we are. We don't become sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful. And you say, well, that's not cool. Well, it's just the Bible. So here we go. Uh, Psalm chapter 51. David is confessing the sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba as well as killing her husband to hide his crime. He's really, really bad at hiding crimes. He is confronted by Nathan the prophet, and David, thankfully, because the movement of God in his heart, repents and confesses his sin. And Psalm 51 is a hymn or a psalm that's written of David's confession, and we learn something of the nature of sin in his confession. This is what David says in Psalm 51.3. I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, excuse me, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So, verses 3 and 4, David confesses his specific deeds of evil. God, that which I have done wrong, I committed adultery with Bathsheba, I murdered her husband. These things are before me, and I, I mean, I can't even stop thinking about them. They're constantly in front of me. In fact, God, you are proved right in the fact that I have done these things because you have said that I have been, that I am a sinful man. Against you, God, have I sinned. I have done something evil. I have acted out with my body evil things. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David is not saying he's sinful because he sinned. He's saying, I'm going to take it all the way back to the day of my birth. How I acted is perfectly consistent with who I was born to be. David understood he was born fallen. He was born a sinner, and the fact that he murdered somebody and committed adultery shouldn't be surprising to anybody. Sinners commit adultery. And you say, well, that doesn't seem fair. How does that work? If you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read Romans 5. Paul develops this idea a little bit in Romans 5.12. 
And this is what Paul says in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the argument that Paul is making in Romans 5 comes and helps us understand what David is saying in Psalm 51. Sin came into the world because Adam and Eve sinned and everyone born from them is born a sinner, born in their sin nature. We're born already condemned. The fact that we then commit sinful deeds is not surprising because we were born sinners. Every person who was born is born dead in their trespasses and sins. And he says, death and sin spread to all of mankind. All of humankind, absent Christ himself, all of humankind is born condemned in their trespasses and sinned. I don't have a theological argument to prove that's true. All I have to say to prove that is true is, two-year-olds exist. Right? Proved it, right? Have you ever met a two-year-old? Okay, so we don't need to develop that point any further. Okay, good. The result of Adam's sin, the result of Eve's and Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, partaking of the fruit that was forbidden, was that every single person born to them would have their identity, which their identity was the identity of dead sinner. Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Not feel guilty, not need to see a therapist. You will be dead. Romans 6.23, for, for the wages of sin is death. When we sin, we become separated from God, which is the spiritual death. When we sin, we become separated from God. He is our source of life, and that guarantees every single person who has ever been born, what? They're all dead. The most dangerous place to be on planet Earth is planet Earth. Everybody literally dies. In this society, we, we hide from it. We sanitize ourselves from it. We don't want to see it. Everybody has died. This has been proven 100% true. We have been looking for the fountain of youth for all of time. It hasn't been found because it doesn't exist. Everyone who is born is born and will die because we are sinners. We weren't just sick. We're dead. Before we move on to the second verse of Ephesians chapter 2, just a couple of things to think about in your own mind. Let me just point this out. This may be patently obvious. Guess what? Religion can't fix dead. Good deeds can't raise the dead. Have you ever met anybody who was so good that they never died? If good deeds could raise the dead, how come they haven't yet? Haven't there been some pretty good people? I mean, there's been some really good people. And they die. So religion cannot fix dead. Good deeds cannot fix dead. A spirituality uh, that's ginned up in our own life and our own leading can't fix dead. 
We can't good our way out of sin because the sin we've already committed will never go away on our own. Our condition is bad. I hate to tell you this, what got us there is worse. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't just sick, we were dead. Move on to verse 2. How bad is our bad? We didn't just make mistakes, we walked with the devil. Now you're offended. You're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We didn't just make mistakes, we walked with the devil. The course of this world was the course of the spirit of the power of this air, the devil. You've seen the movie, The Yellow Brick Road, or The Wizard of Oz. How do you get to the Emerald City? The Yellow Brick Road. The course of the a way to get to the Emerald City was the Yellow Brick Road. The courses of this world all pointed one direction, and they're just as empty as the Wizard of Oz was. All the courses of this world were built on the human heart, so all of the courses of this world will lead to corruption and death. All the systems of this world at their core will not lead us to God. All the systems of this world at the core are designed by fallen people following after a rebelled angel. See, God designed us to bring Him glory, to enjoy the things of this world only as a way of understanding God better. And what we did is we exchanged God in to worship the things of this world. Instead of pursuing our pleasure by knowing God, we pursued our pleasure by the things of this world. And in fact, Jude describes the things that the pleasures of this world this way, a rainless cloud, a hidden reef, a shepherd that feeds only himself. What's a rainless cloud for a farmer? He needs crops growing, and here comes the cloud, and he gets excited, and then it blows over with no rain. What's a hidden reef for a sailor? He sees nothing but smooth sailing out in front of him. He has no idea that 100 yards ahead, a reef is going to tear the bottom of his boat out. And Jude is saying exactly what the author of Ephesians is saying is this. We have pursued the courses of this world, our pleasures, our desires, voluntarily. And they're going to gut the the bottom of our boat right out. They're going to provide no hope. And we've all done this. Haven't you pursued the desires of your heart and haven't they come up wanting? I mean, they're exciting for the first 10 minutes. And then pretty soon you need more and more and more of whatever it is. You sin... Because you were born in sin and because the world system and the one ruling the world temporarily is the devil wanted you to sin and you followed him and walked with him through the courses of this world. The fact that you are caught up in sin is not a mistake. It's not a whoopsie. It's, I'm in. Let's do it. I will follow the courses of this world and walk with the devil. In our sinful nature, in our position of being dead, the only authority we have is the world and the devil, and we walked with him. There's not some sinners absent the work of God that don't follow the devil. He's in charge if Christ is not. We don't just simply make mistakes. We don't have whoopsies. We have my allegiances to the evil one. Let me just say this before we move to our final verse. Sometimes we think sin, even in the life of the believer, that we can sort of manage it. 
could sort of have our pet sin. It's not a big deal. Sort of, you know, it's not hurting anybody. I can manage this situation. Let me just explain what the devil's system is designed to do. It's just one thing. The devil just has one goal. Do you know what his goal is? I've mentioned it before. To murder everybody. So there's no managing your sin. There's no keeping it in a check. It will either seek to destroy you or you will walk away from it in the power of Christ. There is no managing it. The Bible has no position on sort of handling your sin. It's either kill it or it will kill you. Just very quickly, what Paul says in Romans 7.23, he says this, I see in my members a war waging, a war waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law that dwells, the sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, even as Christians, this sinful nature, this tainted flesh, pulls us in ways we know are wrong. And Paul, and I would expect many of us, have prayed this very same prayer. Who's going to deliver me from this? I have blown it again, and I know Greg is right because he's just telling me what the Bible says. This is going to kill me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25 of Romans 7, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now, how much condemnation? Oh, you're very convinced. I mean, based on your vocal intonation there, there's an average amount of condemnation. There is now no condemnation. We struggle with sin and we fight with sin, but as believers, even when we fail, we get to come to the cross of Christ and say, Jesus, I am righteous and holy in you. It doesn't mean we tolerate it, but that's where we find hope. The only way to find hope in the midst of this world system and in the midst of being dead in our sin is hope in Christ who has provided freedom from sin through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Okay, last thing. Just review, make sure you're staying with me. How bad is our bad? We weren't just sick, we were dead. Okay, good. We didn't just make mistakes, we walked with the devil. Okay, you didn't want to have to say devil today. There we go. If you think the devil is bad and the world's evil is bad, guess what? It gets worse. You loved it. You loved every minute of it. Look at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. talking about the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How much, what were we doing? The desires. What does that mean? We wanted to do it. We, our desires of our flesh were being poured out into the world around us. It wasn't just that the devil made me do it. The devil gave us the, so, hey, you know what, you ought to do this. We said, And that is a great idea. That's exactly what I want to do. We weren't just snared. We loved being snared. They talk about something among kidnap victims called the Stockholm Syndrome. Have you heard of that? It's where uh, kidnappees, captives, uh, over the course of time, as a reaction to try and survive, they build a bond of positive feelings with their captors. 
At the end of the, sometimes they've had uh, those having been kidnapped, they have trouble getting them to press charges against people who have held them captive. And this is similar to us. We were dead, we were ensnared, we were imprisoned, and we loved it. We didn't want anything else. It was fantastic. Look how James describes the progression of sin in the life of the believer, which echoes this. Each person, James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Whose desire? We try to make our sin sound so righteous. Oh, I really didn't want to do it. What? You crazy? I mean that in the nicest way. Each one is tempted when lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, and now it's really fun. Now it's awesome. Now it's exciting. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Bad news. That's how it always ends. See, we're not just snared. The problem with sin is not that we hate doing it. The problem with sin is it's awesome for a minute, and then we die. We aren't as offended by sin as we like to seem. We enjoy it. Sin would not be a problem if it was dull. Why do we call it a struggle with sin? It's a struggle because we want to do it as much as we don't. But we're not nearly as offended as sin as we like to seem. What does offend us about sin? What is offensive about sin in our life? Let me just point out one thing as we move to conclude. I want you to ask this question in your mind, and when you look around you, when you think about sin, and you think about all the things we've touched on briefly here this morning, what is the damage that sin causes? What is the damage that sin causes? Kind of think about that in your mind a little bit. Let me give you some answers that we might normally answer with that I think are telling. We say sin has damaged the world. The world's systems are all out of whack. We see uh, crazy people leading entire countries. We see famine in some places. We see wars in other places. We would look at our culture and we say, look at what, the, what sin has, has done to our culture. It's destroyed our culture as we know it. We might say, well, look what sin has done to the family structure in our country. Look at what sin has done to the families around me. Look at what sin has done to my neighbors. Look at what sin has done to my neighborhood. And what does James tell us and Ephesians 2 tell us about sin? The most damaging sin you will ever deal with is yours. And we, when we think the sin of the world around us is worse than the sin that is in us, we have to confront the actual sin we're dealing with, which is proud arrogance. When we have decided that the world is cattywampus because of its sin, we have forgotten to realize that the reason our life is cattywampus, that's a theological term, is because of our sin. We are not offended by sin, as one author has said. We are offended by the sins of others. What's really irritating is not our sin. It's that other people sin different than me. It's frustrating. Why can't they do the respectable sins like I do? Our arrogance is revealed when we look at the world around us and we watch the news around us and we look down our long religious noses and say, if only they understood all of my answers. And then look at your life. 
I mean, seriously. Are you going to still play games with it? Are you on planet Earth with a body? What you're seeing on the news is not the worst sin you're going to deal with this week. The worst sin you're going to deal with this week is in your heart, and it will kill you. Our flesh is tainted. The struggle is real. Yes, in Christ we are free from the bondage of sin and death, but the fact is our bodies are not resurrected yet, and so we still struggle with the desires of our flesh, and the struggle is real. And the struggle is not because I'm being forced to do something I don't want to do. The struggle is I want to do it so bad. And by me, I mean you. One example. James chapter 3 beginning in verse 5. One sin that James thought was going to destroy a church. So, also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, excuse me, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. This guy is offensive. So one sin, I would, I would summarize uh, to apply James' point to our point today. Whatever sin you are offended by in the world around you, the gossip in this room is worse. He described the gossip in a local body of believers as the fire of hell. And we're worried about what you saw in the news last night? I think we need to be straight up about the, the situation we deal with. We aren't just snared. We love being snared. And even when we claim the name of Christ, our body is not resurrected yet. This is a fight we're going to be fighting until we go home. So one way to look at this and think about this as a believer in a body of believers or in a family like this, we might say this. If I understand the nature of sin, I can no longer be judgmental. I have to look at my brother who's doing stuff that offends my senses and say, you know what, I, the struggle's real and I get it. I don't get why he's into that. That's just weird. But he doesn't get what my deal is either. And I can no longer stand back and look down my long religious nose and accuse him of being weak-minded. I, I no longer can stand in judgment. I have to recognize the struggle is real. And even though I would say, well, good Christians don't struggle in that way, I may as well just rephrase it. Christians should be like me. But at the same time as Christians, we're not going to be permissive about sin because don't we see the danger of it? What does sin do to people? It just kills them. So although we are not going to approach our brothers and sisters who are caught up in sin as we read in Galatians with a judgmental sense of I'm better than you or stop being so naughty, at the same time, I'm not going to let them languish in a place where they might die. So we're not going to be judgmental, but nor are we going to be permissive because we understand the danger. We must have humility in the struggle, love and support, pray for victory, and get to heaven. The struggle will end. Amen? Anybody going to heaven? Come on. I mean, it's going to end one day. Okay. I'm going to wrap this up. How bad is our bad? It's worse than we thought. We don't need to be healthier. We're dead. We need a resurrection. We don't need to make fewer mistakes. We don't need to avoid obstacles. We don't need to try to do more good than bad. 
No, we need to abandon our false gods and be reunited with the true God. We don't need to be freed from a prison that we hate. We need to have our eyes changed so we no longer love this gilded prison so much. How do we do this? We're supposed to be risen from the dead. How in the world are we supposed to do that? We're supposed to walk away from the false worship of the alluring things of this world. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Have you seen the commercials for the new cars? They're amazing. We're supposed to abandon all of the things that motivate us and really make our blood flow. How in the world am I supposed to do that? Let me just give you even more bad news. Even if we could figure out how to overcome it, which is completely impossible because no matter how bad we understand our situation is, it's actually worse than we think. Not only that, but if we could overcome it, we'd have to be convinced that the best thing would to be would be to overcome the things of this world that we might know God. And then once we found out what the price is to overcome the things of this world, we would, we would say, uh, no, thank you. The price is too steep. But let's just think hypothetically. If we could see how bad our situation is, and we could be convinced that getting out of this situation is the best thing, could we even pull that off? Think about your life. Your life, in terms of doing things right and wrong, there's probably been some successes in your life, right? You've done something, you've made some good choices, right? You're here today, that's one good choice. Probably marked with a lot of failure. Do we really think that we could overcome spiritual death, that we could overcome the worship of this world, or that we could overcome the devotion we have to our own passions and pleasures all by ourselves? There's no way. The situation is completely and totally hopeless. Let me conclude here where we're going to begin next week. Ephesians 2, verse 4. What's it say? But God. You can't do it. If you could do it, you wouldn't do it. And if for some reason you did decide to do it, you wouldn't do it well enough, you would always fail. What's Ephesians 4, 1 say? But God. When you discover how much you need God, you run to Him. When you run to him, you find out that's what he's been wanting you to do the entire time. We're dead. We walk with evil. We love it. Who can save us? But God.